Um, and let me certainly encourage you, like David has done, to get to know one another. Um, it's probably not possible to know everybody, is it? Not even in this congregation. The chances are you're going to get to know between 60 and 70 people. And some of you will know that many and some of you won't. Uh, so, but it's a good thing, don't just accept that and say, okay, I don't have to get to know anybody. No, do what Pastor David said. It's try to engage with people you don't know. Particularly, here's a clue, particularly people who sit near you. I tell you what, we are creatures of habit. You normally sit in the same similar section of the building when you come. Agreed? I always sit over there. At night, we always sit over there. I remember one Sunday morning, we sat over there, and it was just, everybody was confused. <coughs> you guys tend to sit on that side of the building. You guys tend to sit on that side of the building. You guys are lost. You just sit in the middle. Some of you, I'm pretty sure there's a race to the back, you like to fill that, and then you slowly get pushed forward. And so some of us sit at the front, some of us sit at the back, some sit left, some sit right. So get to know the people in your sort of section. <laughs> Not with a view to saying, excuse me, you're in my chair. <laughs> you ever been in a church where that happened? Oh, yeah, yeah. Not that often, but it does happen. My previ previous church, we had, at this stage of the church's growth and development, had pews. And there was this uh, elderly lady and creatures of habit. That was her spot. Put her anywhere else, she was just a little bit out. Of, and so she came, and of course it's a visitor who's sitting in her spot. And she did what she shouldn't have done. She said, excuse me, you're sitting in my spot. The building's empty. <laughs> That's my spot right there. So anyway, get to know the people in your sort of general area. And here's another clue. If you don't like the people in your general area, <laughs> move. <laughs> and notice those who move next week, won't you? <laughs> next week's topic is going to be about loving one another. <laughs> and that even begins this morning in this passage. We're working our way through John's, <laughs> John's letter. Um, and the focus is on discovering how God is a God who is at work in the world and how he, w how he is working and how we can work with him. That's our focus for this year as we look at these scriptures. Um, I'm not sure if I completed telling you or not. I don't know. I... I'm not sure that I need to. But um... So last week we were off. I had the flu and I'm better than what I was. I'm still not 100% but I must be, I don't know, in the 90s I guess, on the, on the mend. And I've spoken to some others, other people have had the flu as well and they've had something um, similar. Lester's with us this morning, he's spent 10 days in hospital. And uh, well it certainly flattened me for about 5 or 6 days and I've been saying I've never been as cold as I was then um, as I was in that week. Just couldn't get warm, just cold to the bone. Um, and then of course you know you rug up and then you heat up. And you've got to peel off, and that lasts about five or ten minutes, and then you have to get warm again. And so that went on for several days. So some people are going through terrible things like that. So be aware, and if some folk are home and sick, then maybe we can demonstrate care for them by noticing and by providing a meal or whatever you think is appropriate. How about we pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have to be together. Thank you for your word, for each other, and for your spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit might take 
this portion of your word and that he might minister truth to each of us this morning and that we might not only know truth but that we might live it out in our lives. Unite us together as a community of your people, demonstrating your love to one another and through one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? There is a great event coming for which we need to get ready. Many of you would have seen and observed the Olympics. I suggest several times, probably in our lifetimes, you've seen athletes getting ready, and particularly the Winter Olympics, I'm always um, keen to watch. And I can only imagine the amount of hours, weeks, years of preparation. Occasionally you hear these comments from athletes where they speak about they're training for an athletic event which is like three years away and they start training now. Amazing, isn't it? It takes three years to get in shape for that event. And even then, when they are in shape and to try and time their peak physical performance, some of them get disqualified reasonably quickly or easily. Well, there's a much greater event coming and we're all participants and we all have to prepare. And it does take time to prepare for it. Of course, the great event of which I speak is the second coming of the Lord Jesus, which is what John refers to in this portion of his word. Let me read it to you from 1 John chapter 2, the end of that chapter, verse 28, and we'll read down to chapter 3, verse 10. That's our portion for this morning. It falls into two parts where John refers to both comings of the Lord Jesus. John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and not ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love of the Father that is lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is it doesn't know him. Dear children, dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law, in fact sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared, previous first appearing, so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear friends, don't let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has always been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. That's how we know we are the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother or sister. pretty clear isn't it a couple of disturbing things in there does verse 6 grab anybody 
No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. If that doesn't get you, verse 9 should. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed, his new nature remains in that person. You can't go on sinning because you've been born of God. Anybody here sin this week? What does John mean? Well, the NIV certainly helps us by putting in an extra word which gives the correct meaning of the Greek word, the Greek tense. It's that word continue. It's not saying that we won't sin because back in chapter 1 he's already alluded to that. If we say that we have not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar. We need to confess our sins. So John is certainly not teaching sinlessness, but he certainly is teaching that we are to sin less as we follow the Lord Jesus. So this reading, this part of John's letter is, if you read it through and read it through and read it through, you'll start noticing certain themes that he connects and reconnects and amplifies and comes back and he puts them in two parts and it's quite well structured and he talks about, in, from chapter 2 verse 28 to chapter 3 verse 3, he talks about the second coming of the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus is coming, and so what? Well, if he's coming, we need to get ready for it. How do we get ready for it? Well, we need to abide in him, and if we're abiding in him, then that'll be obvious in our life because we'll be righteous. And by righteous, he means not just simply we are righteous in Christ, our sins are forgiven, but he means that righteousness is being manifested in our life. We'll be living rightly, not perfectly, but rightly. We'll be orientated towards obeying God and pleasing him and again not perfectly but that's the orientation he is coming get ready how do you get ready you need to be in him you need to abide abide in him by abiding in him you will live righteously you'll be pure just as he is pure second paragraph from chapter 3 verse 4 to chapter 3 verse 10 that's second paragraph he talks about not just looking forward to the Lord Jesus's coming therefore be righteous he looks back the Lord Jesus came the first time, and the first time he came, he came to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. And as you accept him and his work, the implication of that is that you will live righteous between now and the second coming. Both comings of the Lord Jesus, the first coming and the second coming, have an implication to our life, which is that we will be holy, that we will be righteous. So writes John. And the outworking also of that righteousness is that we will love one another which is what he will go on to expand in the next paragraph. You see, I guess the key is verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. He writes this to make this is basically the conclusion. This is how we know that we are the children of God, who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. In John's mind, it's black and white, it's very simple. There's two groups in this world. One belongs to God's kingdom. One belongs to another kingdom, the kingdom of the evil one, Satan or the devil, his kingdom. Those people who are not in God's kingdom. This is how you can tell the difference. Anyone who doesn't do what is right is not in God's kingdom. Nor is anyone who doesn't love his brother. It's as simple as that as far as John is concerned. If you're in God's kingdom, you'll do the right thing. You'll be living righteously and you'll be loving towards other people. If you see someone who is not living righteously or doing the right thing and who is not loving towards other people, not in God's kingdom. As simple and as stark as that. And I guess he writes that way deliberately because he wants to shock some people. But as you think about it pastorally, 
If a person who does right and a person who is loving towards other people is in God's kingdom by observation, I know non-Christians who do the right thing and who are loving towards other people. And I know they're not Christians, so I know they're not in God's kingdom. So how do you explain that? Well, as you wrestle with it and as you think about it, then verses 6 and verse 9 in particular in chapter 3, you come to this conclusion. What John is talking about and writing about is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been transferred from one kingdom to another. And with that transfer, there has come about an inward change. That inward change will be manifested in your life. Gradually, slowly, but nonetheless, really, it will be manifested. And I think what John is saying is, if there is no manifestation of this, then you can draw the conclusion that you're not in the kingdom. Maybe the best way that I can illustrate it is that we as followers of Jesus, we are not sinless and we are not perfect, are we? Hello? (sighs) And so our life as we follow him, we follow him and our heart attitude is to please him. And in wanting to please him, we therefore seek to be obedient to him, to obey his commands, and we seek to have the fruit in our spirit in our life, and we seek to be loving to others. We do those things, those behaviours, because we want to please him. Is that true? Agree with that? A non-Christian who doesn't bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, they can also do the right thing. And they can outwardly obey God's commands. But their attitude is, I'm going to be good and kind and nice. I'm going to be obedient to God's commands because I want people to like me, because I want people to notice how good I am. Follow that? Their motivation is themselves. Whereas for the Christian, your motivation, while not purely so, It does include so that my motivation is not that people will like me and that I'll be popular, but rather that I will please him. That's the difference. The orientation of our heart has changed, not perfectly. We still have a sinful nature that wrestles against the new nature and tricks us up and we stumble. It's a bit like, did you notice the new signs, uh, the new lines out here on Nemi's Road coming in the church this morning? A non-Christian is like a large, white, unbroken line. Everything they do, whether it's outwardly good or outwardly bad, doesn't matter. It's motivated by pride from within and therefore tainted. Everything is tainted by sin. That's God's perspective, not a human perspective. Whereas for a believer, our life is more like a dash line. There are gaps in it. There There are bits of... Um, white in it, bits of disobedience, bits of self, bits of pride, all those things are there, but it's not a strong, broken, unbroken line. It's got breaks in it where we are manifesting the righteousness of God. The fruit of the Spirit is creeping through. We are growing in righteousness. We are becoming more Christ-like in our behaviour. I think that's what John's writing and he wants us to understand. So let me go through this 
reasonably quickly. Number one, Jesus is coming again. It's mentioned 318 times in the New Testament. It's the most common theme, certainly, in the New Testament. Nearly every book, not every book, but nearly every book. There are about four books that do not refer to it. It's a consistent theme. Jesus is coming again, and we need to be ready for it. And perhaps in these day and age in the life of the church, we don't preach enough about it. Maybe we don't think enough about it either. But it certainly should be there in the forefront of our mind. The Lord is coming. When is he coming? Well, nobody is sure, are they? There's lots of believers who have lots of different views. They have different views on the millennium. They have different views on the rapture. They have, can he come today? Some say yes, some say no. When he comes, how will he come? And all those things. Basically, what we need to do is to acknowledge the truth that all evangelical Christians do. While we don't agree on the details, we do agree on this truth. He is coming. He is coming. He's coming physically. He's coming gloriously. And he's coming sometime in the future. Be ready. How do you get ready? Well, John's going to tell us, chapter 2, verse 29. Continue in him so that when he appears, you may be confident before him. Continue in him. Abide in him. Stay connected with him. I'll come back to that in a moment. We need to get off to, as one very astute, perhaps witty preacher or Bible commentator once said, we need to get off the planning committee when it talks about the second coming. Get off the planning committee and get on to the welcoming committee. Be ready for his coming. Next term, fourth term, we're going to work our way through the book of Revelation. Our plan was that we're going to try and do it in nine weeks. And through that exposure, whether we continue that process or whether we lengthen it into next year or not, one of the things that we do want to expose you to is that there are a variety of, a variety of opinions. We have um, four pastors at the moment in the life of our church and all four of us have similar but slightly different views. So the other three are clearly wrong and I hope to be able to, to help them understand truth. It's rather arrogant, isn't it? While we are very similar, the, most, the biggest difference would be most of the three of us are probably more on the pre-millennial side, slight differences, and one of us is on the amillennial side. And I'll let you figure out which one that is. Um, so the point is, Jesus is coming. Get ready. When he comes, this passage implies, verse 28, um, <clears throat> so that when he appears, you, you can be confident and not ashamed before him. It it seems that when Jesus comes, there's going to be two groups. One group is going to be confident, I'll come back to them, and there's another group that are going to be ashamed. They're going to be mm, worried. Which is that group? Well, it's more than likely John is referring to, probably, the group of people who were professing Christians who had gone out from the church, the people who were now the false teachers, the people who had professed faith, but they're not real faith. It's probably those people. But there is, a, excuse me, there is another possibility that there's a secondary meaning. Or John could have meant, no, no, when Jesus comes, the non-Christians will be over there and the Christians will be over here and the Christians will be in two groups. One group will be confident and one group of truly born-again followers of Jesus will be ashamed. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you can read the passage. Some commentators say, Perhaps that's what John's referring to, that there are some Christians that while they're Christians and they are following Jesus, they're not fully committed. They're not serving wholeheartedly. There are things that are in their life that are not right that they certainly struggle with, but they're not really giving up on. They've taken 
the easy route. They're comfortable. And that when he comes, they'll be accepted, but not acceptable. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about they'll be saved, their works will be burned up, they themselves will suffer loss, but they will be saved, but as through fire. Perhaps that's what John's referring to. <clears throat> that's something for us to seriously consider. I do think it's inappropriate to think, it's incorrect to think, that because I am in Jesus, because I have accepted him and he has forgiven all my sin, it doesn't matter how I live in the here and now, I mean, I try my best to be godly and obedient and to follow and serve him. <clears throat> but really, it doesn't really matter. Because right at the end, when he comes, we all get immediately cleansed, transformed, transferred and made holy. Bang, we're all the same. I think that is incorrect thinking. There's an element of truth in it that when we do see him, we will be instantly transformed. But there could be, I expect, I think, there is this distinction between those who are faithful as followers of Jesus and those who have been unfaithful, if you like, in following Jesus. They are still followers of Jesus and they may very well lack confidence before him at his coming. It's like a little boy, I'll give you this illustration, like a little boy who <clears throat> goes outside to play and when he plays he gets all dirty and covered in mud and stuff and then he comes back in for dinner. When he comes back in for dinner, he's a child of the family, he is accepted. But because he's covered in dirt and stuff, it's not acceptable for him to come to the table. Does that make sense? So he's got to be cleansed before it can come in. There is a difference in what's going to be happening. And no, I'm not talking about purgatory or something like that, that he needs to go through some other cleansing experience. The Bible doesn't teach that. But that there is this distinction in the family, but not fully there. And then John certainly says, but there is another group of people, those when Jesus does come, that they'll be confident before him. They'll be bold, they'll be fearless. They will go forward to meet him gladly and graciously. Have you ever had the privilege or have you ever had the experience of meeting some dignitary, somebody who is really, really important? Ever done that? Some of you, I'm sure, have. Whether they're political leaders or whether they're foreign dignitaries or, or whatever it is. And for us, the vast majority of us are just normal, ordinary people. When we meet people of high status like that, be they from politics or business or sport, whatever, celebrities. When we meet them, we're a little bit nervous, we're a little bit unsure of ourselves, aren't we? Well, the word John is using here is that when Jesus, the King of glory, comes, we won't have that feeling of nervousness. It'll be more like we'll go forward to Jesus confidently. You're my King and I've been waiting for you. Not brashly, but longingly. He's contrasting that, that we can have that sort of experience when Jesus comes. Well, how do you have that experience? Well, he told you, continue in him. You need to abide in him. And of course, abide is one of John's favourite words. He uses it 24 times in 1 John alone. If you're going to abide in Jesus, you need to be in Jesus. You need to know him personally. You need to have accepted him as your saviour, confessed him as your Lord. But to abide in him as a believer, you also... There's something for you to be doing. It's not just passive. 
When you become a Christian, you are inserted into him like a branch into the vine. You are in the family. You are connected. And you can't be taken out. But it's not passive. It's not just that. It's a command here to abide in him. So therefore, there's something for us to be doing. There's some action for us to be involved in in this process of abiding. And John goes on to outline it in both this paragraph and the next one where he talks about we need to be obedient to him, we need to be loving towards others, and we need to be making choices to live righteously. And he picks the third one. Um, Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. To be connected in him, to abide in him, means you'll be demonstrating that by living righteously. Don't misunderstand me, please. I am not saying that if we live righteously, we will be made righteous. No. Other way. We are made righteous in Jesus, and because of that, therefore, we live righteously. He is the cause and the source and the strength of the righteousness that we demonstrate. We don't earn it by works, but we do demonstrate it in action. Living righteously is a lifelong process. It's growing in obedience. It's not instant. There will be setbacks. There will be struggles and distractions and all of that. That's the normal part of growing up and following Jesus. But it is a process which is ever forward, never upward. It's not a line that goes up like this. It's not my experience. But it is a line that goes up and plateaus. Goes up and plateaus. Goes up and plateaus. Goes up and plateaus. And during some of those plateau times, you can, in fact, go backwards. But then you go forward again. It's confess and it's repent and it's change your mind and your ways and move forward again. And over time, you grow as you follow Jesus. Okay? I think that makes sense. Then John goes on to talk about the amazing love of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Because Jesus is coming... We don't want to be ashamed of him, ashamed of ourselves in his presence. We want to be confident when he comes, therefore we need to abide in him. And John now says, don't forget, it's incredible who you are. You're a child of the king. You're a part of the family. Look what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. He says, and that's what we are. We are the children of God. And the devil knows it. We are the children of God. What an incredible, thrilling title and experience that the world doesn't know because they don't know him. It's exactly what John says in verse 2. There is a difference now between us and the world because now we are children of God and that difference will be manifested in our lives, in our attitudes and particularly in our attitudes towards one another. This love of God which is awesome and grows stronger and stronger over the years. Um, It grows until it dominates our thinking, our worldview. We are loved by God. It's not just a statement and a ho-hum experience or a song we sing, but it's something that you grow into over the years and appreciate to a deeper and deeper level. It begins to control your thinking. I don't do certain things not only because I will get caught or because I know it's wrong, but I don't do them because I know it will displease him. It will hurt him. The love of God moulds us, shapes us, motivates us, creates in us an experience of awe and worship. And John says, how great is this love the Father has lavished on us? Quite literally, he means 
Where did this come from? Where in the world does this come from? That's that. You ever been to a, a market or something and you've seen some fruit or you've had some dish and you said, where did that come from? It's not part of your country. It's not part of your experience. It's literally out of your worldview, out of your experience. It's that word. Where does this love of God come from? It's not in this world. It's from outside this world. And it won't be found anywhere else in this world except from the Father. There's nothing like it in the world. This love of the Father is, I know you know this, it's not earned, it's not deserved, you can't buy it, you can't negotiate for it, you can't bargain for it, you can't vow and make promises to get it. It's something you simply receive. Made available to one and all. But once you receive it, then a transfer happens. You are transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the Father, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of light. There's a transfer. You've been born again. You've been changed. The old has gone. The new has come. John's writing with all of that perspective. And because of that, not only what we are, he also goes on to say about what we should therefore be. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, themselves as he is pure. As you grow in the love and experience of God's love for you, it transforms you, your heart, and it makes you holy, more holy, as you follow him. Then John looks back. He's looked forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Now he looks back to the first coming of Jesus, and he says uh, in verse 5, but you know that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. And then in verse 8, He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. His argument is very simply this. Looking ahead, Jesus is coming. Don't be ashamed of him. Be confident in him by abiding in him. And if you abide in him, then that will be manifested in your righteous life. Look back to the first coming of Jesus. Why did he come? He came to take away sin and he came to undo the works of the devil. He came to put holes in the devil's net so he could no longer trick us and trap us. He came to set us free. If you're in him and he is the one who took sin away, how can you sin? If you are out of Satan's kingdom, you are set free from Satan's traps. Therefore, live righteously. Don't continue in sin. Don't use excuses or rationalise it, but rather follow Jesus. He is the righteous one, he is the pure one, he is the sinless one. John uses those words in that passage. We have been set free from sin's penalty, power, and one day from sin's presence. So summary. Jesus came the first time, removed sin, set us free. Therefore, live righteously and love one another. Jesus is coming in the future. We want to be confident before him. So abide in him, live righteously and love one another. Get it? Got it. He is coming. You need to be in him. If you are in him, you have been transferred to his kingdom. If you're in his kingdom... It'll be demonstrated in your life. You'll live righteously. You'll be different to the world. You'll be pure. Chapter 3, verse 10. Are you in God's kingdom? This is how we know we are the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do right, anyone who is not doing righteousness, 
Anyone who is not obeying the commands of God, anyone who is not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, anyone who is not um, changing slowly and becoming more like Jesus, growing in godliness, anyone who is not like that is not a child of God. Nor is anyone who doesn't love his brother or sister. Loving one another. And that's the paragraph John will go on to talk about. And David will teach us that next week. Are you ready for the greatest event in world history which is coming? The second coming? I guess the answer to that question depends on your answer to this question. Are you abiding in him? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending Jesus to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil, to cleanse us and to change us. Thank you, Father, in your plan, Jesus is coming. Help us to be ready for that coming by continuing to abide in him, to be obedient to him, to be loving to his people, and most of all, to have hearts that want to please him and glorify him. Father, achieve your purposes in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.